The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we read Job chapter 19, verses 16 through 27. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am stench to the children of my own mother. Even younger children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the, teeth, by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And all God's people said, Would you pray with me? Father God, in the moments to come, we ask you for the sake of your glory, in the name of your son that you would calm our hearts and you would sharpen our minds that you would allow my words to be plain that we would hear what you have said to us here that we would respond rightly to it Father we trust that you will do this for it's to your glory and it's in your son's name that we ask it Father, do what only you can do. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as I told you during our time together on the last Lord's Day, in my mind, this section of Mark 15, from verse 21 to 32, it breaks up naturally into three sections. The first section, those first two verses, verses 21 to 22, they tell us about Jesus' short journey from the headquarters of Pilate to the place called Golgotha. That middle section that we studied last week, verses 23 to 27, they tell us about the surrounding events, everything that happens once Jesus arrives, including the actual events of the crucifixion itself. And then this morning's text, verses 29 to 32, John Mark seems to pull back a bit. It almost feels as though he's painting the audience and then just moving from group to group to show us how each of the people that witnessed this crucifixion in real time actually responded. So last week, as I said, we sought to slow down just a bit. We prayed and we asked God to make certain that we understood what we were looking at as we looked at this second section, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you weren't here with us last week, I would ask you, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It is absolutely critical that you understand what has been said there because you cannot be truly 
Christian if you do not understand the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the very center of the gospel that we proclaim. So in the words that I say to you now, I take great care. My aim is to speak slowly to you and to speak in absolutely plain language. I'm afraid that far too often I've absolutely butchered the gospel. I've made efforts to be cute or to be poetic or to be clever. And as a result of that, I've butchered the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I speak to you as plainly as possible. What Mark shows us here is a man called Jesus of Nazareth. He is willingly submitting to a public and official execution by means of the most shameful and excruciating means imaginable. Even though Jesus had done absolutely nothing wrong and everyone knew it, he was accused and mocked and beaten and condemned. They stripped him of his clothing and then they nailed him by his hands and his feet to a cross where he would suffer through many great hours of anguish both mentally and physically until he dies. That's what we see with our physical eyes. That's what literally anyone that was walking along the road into Jerusalem on this day would have seen. It was something that they had seen dozens, if not hundreds of times. This was a condemned man and he was being put to death. But for those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, for those who by the working of the Spirit have come to recognize that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, for those that come to recognize that above and beyond and over all that we are seeing in this is the hand of God. What we come to recognize here is that while the Jewish people are accusing Jesus, while the Roman soldiers are executing Jesus, in a very real sense, it is God who is killing Jesus. What we're witnessing here is the father delivering his son to death. It pleased the Lord to crush him. This was the will of God. This was the will of God the Father. This was the will of God the Son. This was the will of God the Holy Spirit. This had always been God's plan. God predestined from eternity past that this would happen. This was all for the glory of God. Because it's there at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there in this broken and bruised and bloodied body that we see the perfect picture of God's hatred of sin and his love for the world. On display here in the cross, we see God's holiness and his mercy. We see God's justice and his grace. We see God's wrath and his love. We see right here in the cross of Jesus Christ the beautiful complexity to all that God is and all that he does in his plans, in his working. All of this playing out in the most evil and sinful and selfish act in the history of the world. The murder of God's perfect and righteous and beloved son. Again, I want to slow down and get as, as plain as I can here. Jesus' body is dying on a cross. Literally, his life is fading from his body as he dies on a cross. While at the same time, the sins of wicked men like you and me, all the evil and violence and selfishness and rebellion that we have committed against God, God has taken that sin. He has taken the condemnation and the wrath and the curse that we deserve because of that sin, and he has placed it upon his son. His son willingly took it upon himself. So that while Jesus' body is hanging and dying upon a tree, his soul is enduring much greater punishment, the wrath of God. 
orge is the word in Greek. It means indignation or anger or wrath. The white hot rage that God has for sin and sinners. The fiery torments of hell. God unleashed it without mercy. The fullness of all of his rage and all of his wrath, he unloaded it for the sins of his people upon his blessed and sinless son. He did this because sins cannot be overlooked. God is love. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. God is kind. But God is ferociously holy and infinitely just. And a holy God, a just judge, simply cannot ignore sin. He cannot leave sin, not one single sin, not a white lie, not a selfish thought, not an impure motive. God cannot leave one single sin unpunished. Now to be clear, this isn't something external to or outside of God that demands he punishes sin. It's his own nature. It's his essence. It's his infinite holiness that demands that every single sin must be paid for because sin by its very nature is contrary to all that God is. So it is God's own glory. It is his innate glory that demands that he must punish every single sin. You must see this. You must recognize that sin does not merely create separation between God and man. It creates enmity. That sin does not merely leave us estranged from God. It makes us his enemy. God must punish every last sin. And so the one who sins, and that is everyone, the man who sins, meaning every last man, must die. He must die physically. He will be dead spiritually. He will be consigned to hell forever. There he will spend eternity, billions upon billions of years, night and day, enduring the punishment of God and no closer to the end than when he had first begun. He will never be able to pay the debt that he owes God because of this sin. This is right and this is good because in this is a display of God's infinite holiness. You must understand that this reality right here God's hatred for sin, it is a thing to be celebrated. It is a grounds for our worship of him, not a thing to be embarrassed about. Not something that we have to explain away. This isn't a fault with the system. This is the holiness of God that demands he must punish every last sin. And this would be the fate. This would be the end of every single man that has ever lived were it not for that cross and Jesus Christ hanging upon it. But in all wisdom, and love God desiring to show both his justice and his mercy he took the sins of many took the sins of wicked men like you and me and the wrath that was due to us and rather than storing it up for us for the day of judgment he unleashed it upon his son that there on the Roman cross Jesus willingly draped down the cup every last drop of God's punishment for his people for the joy of his own exaltation, for the glory of God, he completely satisfied, he appeased the anger and the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, to prove that God has received this substitute in our place, to prove that the ransom it was enough, he raised from the dead. You see, sinful men, as I've just said, sinful men must pay for their sins for all eternity because they can never pay off the debt. 
They can never satisfy what they owe. But to prove that Jesus Christ is enough, on that Good Friday, he cried out, it is finished. Because it was all paid. And on that glorious Easter morning, he walked out of the grave to prove that it was true. That death could not hold the perfect and all-powerful Son of God. And the message of the entire New Testament is this. Any, all, every single person who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. Repent and believe. Trust in this Jesus Christ and on the basis of his finished work, there will be no more condemnation left for you. No more punishment. No more wrath. It will be as if you have never sinned. More than this, it will be as if you have fulfilled every last commandment that God has ever given. No longer will he look to you as an evil man deserving of punishment. No matter how evil you've been. No matter how long you've rejected this offer. If you would see Jesus as your only hope. If you will see him as your ultimate treasure. If you will put the full weight of everything that you have upon him instead of trusting in yourself and the lies of this world, he will no longer look to you as an enemy deserving of damnation. He will count you as a righteous son or daughter. A new creation prepared for unending pleasures in his presence. Beloved, what we're seeing at the cross of Jesus Christ is a trade. He's taking the sin and the shame and the punishment and the wrath that is due to men, and he is taking it upon himself. And what he offers us in exchange is his righteousness, his joy, his blessedness. He gives it freely to all who believe. That's the story of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news. I pray if for some reason you find yourself sitting in this room this morning. I know this is backwards, right? You're supposed to present the gospel at the end. Dear friends, I'm telling you here at the beginning, you won't understand anything that comes next. So I'm, ex- I'm, I'm exhorting you this morning. If you're sitting in this place right now and you don't find yourself repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as your only hope, I'm not talking about something you used to do. I'm not talking about something you did one time way back when. I'm talking about right now. If you don't find yourself turning from your sin and looking to Jesus Christ as your only hope, I pray I want you to know I prayed before we came to this place and I pray right now that God would cause you to do exactly that. I pray that you would call out to him for mercy and I tell you, friends, on the basis of the authority of this word, you will be received. So now, we return to Mark's gospel. The question before us is, was this how the people that were standing there around the cross received it? Did they respond with repentant faith? So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence to the reading of God's word. We continue working verse by verse through Mark chapter 15. We're going to read this entire section beginning in verse 21. This is the word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one at his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, I ask you to do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have written for us here. Help us to respond rightly. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So again, as we have just read, Jesus has arrived at this place called Golgotha. It's there that he is crucified. And Matthew tells us that the accusation against Jesus was placed above his head. This would seem to indicate that our our conception of what the cross looked like, a cross much like the one that's behind me, that that is probably an accurate portrayal of what this cross looked like, that there would have been a cross beam and it would have sat somewhere below the top of the upright because it was above Jesus that the placard was hung that brought the charge that was against him. Now, if we take all of the gospel accounts together and we read the charge, it comes like this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, you remember that the Jewish leaders, they didn't like this charge. They did not receive Jesus as anything other than a blasphemous nuisance. And so they went to Pilate and they told him, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write this man said that he is king of the Jews. But the governor was, of course, done playing with these jokers. And he said, what I've written, I have written. So Jesus is nailed to the cross and the cross is then hoisted up and dropped down into the post hole that was prepared for it. On either side of Jesus are two criminals, violent insurrectionists, much like the man called Barabbas. There's one on the left and one on the right because Jesus was in fact counted among the transgressors. He was thought of, he was spoken about, he was treated like a transgressor by everyone there, even God. So this sets the stage. But before we turn our attention to this morning's text, before we, before we go to looking from witness to witness, there's one more thing that I need to show you. If we look at Luke's record of the crucifixion, just before telling us about the inscription, we read in Luke 22:34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now this one verse deserves probably a number of sermons, and so we're going to have to wait until in God's perfect timing, he brings us to work verse by verse through Luke's gospel, and then we'll be able to do a full and proper exposition. But this prayer from Jesus, it is critical to everything else that we're reading. So I'd first draw your attention to see Jesus' heart. Hear the words that he says, Father, forgive them. We cannot help but think back to the Mount of Olives. We cannot help but think to his teaching there in Matthew 5 when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Dear friends, it is one thing to sit on a grassy hill it is one thing on a beautiful spring day to sit on a hill surrounded by all your friends and to tell them you must bless those that curse you. You must love your enemies, but to actually do it. And great shame and suffering while abandoned by every last friend you had to actually put it into practice, to actually love your enemies, the people who persecuted you, the people who were truly hateful towards you, in the middle of this exhaustion, this humiliation, this physical pain. Dear friends, if you don't understand what a big deal this is, then you have either reached perfect sinlessness or you just hadn't been hurt bad enough yet. See, we're told that Jesus says only seven things, or at least only seven things are recorded for us while Jesus is on the cross. I have to imagine this is at least 
in part because it was incredibly difficult for him to get a full breath. It was painful and difficult. And yet we find that he was willing to exert that effort to make this statement right here. This was one of the seven. He wanted to make it so clear to us that there is absolutely no limit whatsoever to this command. Love your enemies. Love those who receive from your hand food and goodness and healing only to turn around and falsely accuse you. Love those who take advantage of your weakness by strike, meekness, excuse me, by striking you in the face. Love those who twist your words as they try to trip you up. Love those who literally spit in your face and seek to put you to death. Unless you believe this is some kind of love that's reserved only from God, think about the man called Stephen. As he was being stoned, he cried out to God, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Dear ones, you must love your enemies. And in that love, you must pray for them. But do you notice the way that Jesus prayed? Jesus did not pray, Father, change them. He did not pray, Father, show them how wrong they are that they may be ashamed. He said, Father, forgive them. Now, is repentance necessary in order to be forgiven by God? Absolutely. And that's the second thing that I want you to see here. You see, there's many of us that we may be tempted to read these words. These words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some of us may be tempted to read these words and think that what Jesus is saying is, Father, because these people don't know what they're doing, they're not actually guilty. But you must see that the cry for forgiveness, it implies guilt. Innocent people don't need forgiveness. So obviously, these people are truly guilty. They needed forgiveness because they're really guilty. Now, I read the thoughts of of many good and wise men this week with regards to who exactly Jesus is speaking about here. Who are the they that he's speaking about? Is it the soldiers? Is it the robbers? Is it the Sanhedrin? Is it the common Jewish people? It seems to me that it is everyone because none of these people knew what they were doing. They knew what they thought they were doing. They knew what their hearts desired for them to be doing, and that's why they were genuinely guilty. No one forced these people to do anything they didn't want to do. Now, you might say, wait a minute, what about Pilate? Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. He sought every opportunity not to put Jesus to the death. Well, apparently, Pilate wanted to preserve his own life more than he wanted to save Jesus' life. Dear friends, you must understand that God has made man in such a way that we're allowed to pursue after that which our heart wants most. That's the very basis of our guilt, our responsibility, and our sin. Every single person in this drama, they were doing exactly what they wanted. They owned this sin, and it was that sin that darkened their hearts that darkened their minds. They had become futile in their thinking. Friends, you must see this. That it wasn't that this, it wasn't that ignorance led to their sin, it was that their sin led to their ignorance. They had darkened themselves by suppressing the truth. Because of this sin, they had darkened their hearts. These people really were ignorant. They were ignorant as to the goodness of God. They were ignorant as to the depths of their own depravity. They were ignorant as to this one that they now crucified, failing to understand that he was the one that came to bridge that gap, that he was the one that came to give his life, that they might be reconciled to God despite their sin and despite God's goodness. They did not know because in their unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth of God. Now, I know I've been all over the map already, but I ask, I pray that you'll allow me here to read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's lengthy, but it's good. I ask, but if you said no, I'm reading it anyway, so I don't really care. When a man is ignorant and does not know what he ought to do, what should he do? Well, he should do nothing until he knows what to do. But here's the mischief of it, that when we do not know what to do, we go ahead and choose the wrong thing. If we did not know, why didn't we choose the right thing? 
Because being in the dark, we never turn to the right. We always blunder to the left, from sin to sin. Does not this show us the depravity of our own hearts? Though we seek to be right, when we are let alone, we go wrongs of our, wrong of ourselves. Leave a child alone. Leave a man alone. Leave a tribe alone without teaching and instruction and what comes of it. Why, the same thing that comes when you leave a field alone. It never by chance produces wheat or barley. Leave it alone, and there are rank weeds and thorns and briars, showing the natural set of the soil. It always produces that which is worthless. O oh, friends, confess the innate evil of your hearts as well as the evil of your lives in that when you did not know, yet having a perverse instinct, you chose evil and refused the good. Do you understand that ignorance does not equal innocence? It merely reveals sin. And forgiveness will not come to these people unless they see the evil they have done and cry out for mercy. But see Jesus' heart in this prayer. He truly longs for their forgiveness. He hopes that these people will turn away from their wicked ways, not to ease his suffering. Jesus must die. This is the way of salvation. This is why Jesus has come. So he's offering this prayer not to ease his own pain. He's offering this prayer not just to bring these people to shame for what they have done. He truly desires for these people to repent and be forgiven. He truly desires for these people to turn from their ways and be received by God. Church, I know we haven't made it to Mark yet, but please hang with me on this. Jesus not only loved his enemies, Jesus not only came to give his life for those. In this general prayer that he offers now, he is making clear to them that forgiveness is available even in this. God can forgive you even in this if you will turn and believe. This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of the one that they so desperately wanted to destroy in these moments. And yet what we see in just over 50 days from this point, the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon the 120 hiding within that room, just as Jesus has promised, Peter preaches the very first sermon in the history of the church to a mostly Jewish crowd still gathered together in Jerusalem for the feast. We have to imagine that surely there were some there that heard the preaching of Peter that also heard the prayer of Jesus while he was upon the cross. So Peter delivers this sermon, and then we hear them say, when they heard the teaching, they were cut to their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Beloved, you must understand this, that by the spirit of God, the word of God pierced these men's hearts. Do you understand? That's what they needed. More than new information, more than some new revelation, they needed the word of God to penetrate their hearts and thereby be changed. They say, what must we do? What was Peter's response? Repent and believe. And we're told that on that day, 3,000 souls were saved. You understand? Ignorance is not an excuse for sin, but more than new information, these people needed the word of God by the spirit of God to penetrate, to pierce, to come into their hearts. In accordance with Jesus' sincere prayer, the Holy Spirit came and made that very thing happen for thousands of men. While there were surely thousands more that walked away unchanged. Thousands more that had seen the same crucifixion. Thousands more that had heard this same prayer. Thousands more that had heard this same sermon. Thousands more that seen the same evidence of the Holy Spirit coming upon these men, and still they walked away unchanged and lost forever. The difference was the heart. So back to Mark's gospel. Verse 29. Those who passed by him wagged their heads and said, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So who are these people? Were these people that had come out explicitly to watch the crucifixion? Well, it doesn't seem like it. Mark and Matthew use the very same Greek phrase. This phrase that is translated, those who pass by. It's only used three other times in the entire New Testament. All of those three times it's used by Mark. In Mark 2, this phrase is used one Sabbath when Jesus and his disciples were going through the grain fields. It's used in Mark 9 when Jesus and his disciples passed through Galilee. It's used in Mark 11 as Jesus and his disciples passed by the withered fig tree. So it seems clear to me that these people weren't standing there at Golgotha. They hadn't come out expressly to watch the crucifixion. They were passing by. They were going through. Much like Simon of Cyrene, these people were probably minding their own business. I have to imagine that some portion of them, they were coming in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And if this is accurate, then these are religious people. These were people that were coming into the city, a, a time filled with great prayer and thanksgiving for all that God had done and setting their forefathers free from slavery in Egypt and looking forward with great anticipation to the final saving, the final redemption, that final day when God would fulfill every last promise. So they came to the city with this sense of, in mind, this sense of hope and anticipation and prayer. They came there to offer for themselves the Passover lamb and along the way they encountered the lamb of God the one that the first Passover lamb and everyone that had come after had been pointing forward to. They were all but a shadow, but a picture, but a copy, but a sign. And now the true lamb of God had come, the one that they had been waiting for, the only one in whom Moses could be saved, the only one in whom they could be saved. And they hated him because they did not know. And so they derided Jesus. Now we don't use that word much in English, derided. The word can also be translated reviled, but I think when we look to the Greek word, it makes a little more sense perhaps. It, Paints us a clear picture. The word is blasphemio. Now, of course, where we get our word blaspheme from, and it can be used in that sense, but it can also just be used of a common man. This is the same word that's used of the Jewish people that would go from town to town chasing down Paul and trying to undo his teaching. They would speak a word of evil, deriding, reviling Paul. It's the thing that we're warned against in Titus 3.2. We're told to speak no evil. It's the very same word. They were told to speak evil of no one. Now, I think this is what those pastors by thought they were doing. They thought that they were just deriding an average, ordinary man, a common criminal. They thought that they were just reviling this man that was deserving of their contempt. But in reality, this was the ultimate of blasphemy. They looked at Jesus, the sinless man who hung upon a cross and prayed for their forgiveness. More than that, the infinite son of God who had stepped down from the glories of heaven to reveal the fullness of who God was, to submit himself to a life of shame and suffering for our sake. And they blasphemed him because they did not know. But soon enough, some of them would. Soon enough, some of them would be pierced to the heart. They would cry out for forgiveness and repentant faith. They would realize at that moment that Jesus meant what he said, Father, forgive them, that there was forgiveness offered to even them. This forgiveness was extended even to those who derided, who blasphemed Jesus Christ in his final hours. But at this moment, they were so blinded by sin. Their hearts were so hardened. They were so easily led astray by the religious leaders of the day that they derided Jesus. They were disgusted by the Christ. Scripture says that they wagged their heads. I have to imagine it's, it's like this. We read something like this in Jeremiah 18, 16. There's a passage there where God is talking about the people and their refusal to turn away from their idolatry and turn away from their sin. And he says, Jeremiah 18, 16, everyone who passes by is horrified and shakes his head. This is a proper response to sinful idolaters. But instead what we see on this day is sinful men wagging their head at God. They're saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, it seems safe to assume that what these men are referring to is something that's happened three years earlier. 
during the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. You remember this, that Jesus came in and he found there the money changers going about all their every ordinary ordinary everyday business and it, it greatly distressed him and so he made a whip of cords and he chased the men flipping over tables and he chased the men out of the temple complex of course the Jewish leaders they demanded a sign by what authority do you do these things we read about this in John 2 but Jesus answered them destroy the temple destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up and so the people were very confused because the temple by this point had been under construction for 46 years it would be almost 40 more years before the construction project was complete. And you say that you would rebuild it in three days after it being torn down? But we read in John 2, 18 that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple complex. He was talking about himself. He is the true temple. It is in him that God has come to dwell with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the true temple of God. They would destroy it. But in three days, he would rise again. This was more than enough sign. This was more than enough proof of Jesus' power and his authority and his right to do whatever he wished in his father's house. Well, apparently, these people remembered Jesus' prophecy. At least they thought they remembered Jesus' prophecy. Church, I am more convinced today than ever before that a little bit, about, a little bit of knowledge about God is a very dangerous thing. And then after I wrote those words, I took it back. It's not the amount of knowledge that matters. You see, a man that knows very little about God and recognizes just how little he knows is in a wonderful place. It's the man who believes he's got God figured out. I told my girls this morning, I said, girls, I'm gonna present the gospel tomorrow morning in as plain a language as possible. And what I ask of you is that you try to hear it for the very first time. To think you've got the gospel mastered, dear friends, there's so much depth and beauty there. It's the man who thinks he's got the things of God figured out that's in great, great danger. It's, it's the man who thinks I've got that figured out, I can put that up on a shelf now. And Why do you continue to dig and why do you continue to struggle and why do you continue to hurt our brains? That's the man that's in great danger. The man who is clueless as to just how little he knows. And I need you to hear the haughtiness in these people's tones. They completely misrepresent what Jesus actually said. And how many times have I called you this of late? What does the word actually say? What does he mean by what he actually says? Actually doing the work of understanding what this is before we determine how we're supposed to react to it. Dear friends, you must know that there's something particularly sad and grotesque about this kind of ignorant self-righteousness. The one who throws their nose in the air while having no idea what God has actually says. Isn't that what Proverbs 19 says? Zeal without knowledge is not good. These people never took the time to know what Jesus actually said. I heard what I heard and I've made my decision. I've heard what I've heard and I will respond to this. I've heard what I've heard and my heart hates that man. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Is that what Jesus said? Again, no. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. He said they would destroy the temple. These people, the Jewish people, they would destroy the temple, the temple that is his body. But in three days it would rise again, but they did not know but eventually some of them would. John tells us that when therefore he was raised from the dead, that is Jesus, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we see the hearts of these people, whether their hatred was deep and abiding or whether they were just swept up by the mob. Either way, they were piling even more mockery upon Jesus. Now, he doesn't bother to correct their faulty understanding because it wouldn't have mattered because their hearts were not right. And so it's at this point that they issue a challenge. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself 
and come down from that cross. Matthew tells us that the crowd commands or demands, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. What does that sound like? Words straight from the mouth of Satan. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, it's just this constant tone, trying to get men to doubt the goodness and the promises of God. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Dear friends, there is nothing that Satan wants more than for Jesus to come down from that cross, to abandon his mission. He knows that in the crushing of Jesus' body, the fulfillment of Genesis 3 is coming about right now. That the works of Satan are being destroyed. That captives, slaves to sin and death are being set free. He knows that his eternal fate is being sealed. He knows that in this, the son of woman is stopping his head while he bruises his heel. And with just a little work, you can see the poetic nature. This is beautiful, the poetic nature of what's happening in this moment. You remember what happened when Peter came to recognize Jesus' identity. You remember this. Peter finally looks at him and says, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. And Jesus praises him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then immediately he goes on to tell his friends, let me tell you who the Christ is. We must go to Jerusalem where there I will be rejected and suffer and die and three days later rise again. And what was Peter's response? Not on my watch. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Peter rebuked Jesus because he did not know what he was doing. But immediately he receives a much sharper rebuke of his own from the mouth of Jesus. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This was the work of of Satan. Do you understand? It should be no confusion to us. It should not catch us off guard that fallen men, those who follow the prince of the power of the air, those who continue to follow the course of this world, those who have their minds darkened by sin, that they have no place in their theology for the Christ, the Son of God, to come and die. I pray that you see the irony then in their taunt. Save yourself and come down for the cross. I have expected Jesus to cry out, I can't, I'm too busy saving you. If I come down, none of you get saved. But Christ did not come to save himself. That's what selfish and cowardly men do. That's what Pilate did. Pilate saved himself. He refused to do what he knew to be right. He did violence to his own conscience, and he refused to let Jesus free. But this wasn't the way of Christ. You remember his words back in Mark 8. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now we spent a great deal of time unpacking that message back when we came to it. And so I'm not gonna do that now, but in short, what Jesus was saying is quit treating this physical life as if it were all that there is. If you seek to save just this life and in the process you lose eternal life, you're a loser. You're a loser and you have gained nothing. Now of course Jesus was in no danger of losing his soul, but the principle is the same. He knew that this physical life belonged to God. It was to be used in service to the kingdom of God, and so he gladly laid it down. Verse 31, so the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. These guys, man, they got exactly what they wanted. You knew they were going to say something, but they're getting exactly what they wanted. For three years, they sought to take Jesus' life. They had conspired together with men that they had no use for otherwise, men they actually hated. They had conspired together to get to the point where they could put Jesus to death. They finally have Jesus upon a cross, and they can't help but speaking. But you notice they don't speak directly to Jesus because they're cowards. 
They speak to each other. This reminds me of the words we find in Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Now this word saved in the New Testament, sozo, is not always used with regards to eternal life or, or spiritual matters. As a matter of fact, like in Acts 27, we see the story of Paul, and, his, and he's, he's on this boat, and, and there's a great storm out in the sea, and all the sailors are trying to go overboard. They're trying to abandon him. And so he knows that himself and the soldiers and the other prisoners, they're going to be lost forever. And so Paul says to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Salvation here just means the preservation of life. This is the way that the religious leaders use sozo in this morning's text. Jesus had saved many. We have no clue how many. It seems based on the teaching of scripture that there were entire towns where Jesus healed literally everyone. No sick person left. Surely there were thousands. And we're talking about a time when medicine wasn't like it is today. No one really got healed of anything. They just kind of treated symptoms and hoped for the best. And this was a blessing from God. I submit to you, this was a blessing from God because it made clear anytime someone was healed, that was of God. But Jesus would go town to town and with just a word or with just a touch, he would completely restore people to perfect health. Not just people with fevers, people with busted legs. People that were blind, people with severed ears, people who were dead, completely restored them. Now, even though these men were not admiring Jesus in this claim, they couldn't help but say what was right. They knew that there was no disputing this fact. Beloved, do you notice that? These men never once denied the power of Jesus' healing. And how many people that call themselves Christian today do exactly that? We get bashful and embarrassed by the difficult portions of Scripture. And so we try to explain away the miracles. Any kind of supernatural working of God, we try, to, we try to hide it or try to work around or try to never preach on it. But his enemies never did that. Those who were there at that time desperately seeking to destroy him, they didn't try that because it was too obvious. The best they could do was misappropriate his power, was, was accuse him of being filled with a demon. It was by the power of Beelzebub that he did these things. That was back in Matthew 12. But Jesus' power was undeniable. These miracles, there were too many of them. So all they could do was cast doubt as to the source. But never once did they deny that he had saved thousands. But now they taunted him. He saved others. Now let him save himself. Verse 32. Let the king, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. These men were always demanding a sign. They were always claiming that if Jesus would just give them the right proof, then they would believe. Do you know people like that? Were you yourself once like that? Again, I say that it wasn't about seeing something new. It wasn't about some new miracle or some new revelation. It was the heart. Unless their heart was right. You see, a heart of stone, it cannot receive the word of God. A hardened heart of sin, it's going to see Jesus raising a man from the dead, and instead of falling down in worship, it's going to be all the more determined, not only must I kill Christ, I must kill the one that he's raised from the dead. These men were going to receive no kind of sign from Jesus, no matter what it looked like. So they issued the challenge, why don't you come down from the cross? If you are the Christ, if you are the king, then come down from the cross. But what they didn't understand was he would not be the Christ or the son of God if he came down from the cross. He was there on the cross and he was purchasing citizens for his kingdom. But again, I say above and beyond that, even if he had, even if holy angels had come from heaven and released Jesus from that cross, these men would not believe. They had already seen so much and so deep was their depravity. So hardened was their heart. They would not believe. These men did not know what they were doing. But eventually some of them would. 
Then we move to this final group. It says that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, in case you're wondering, there are two other groups, and we'll touch on those next week. We read in the other Gospels about Mary, the mother of Christ, and much has been written about what she must have endured during all of this time, but the reality is Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot other than this one brief and incredibly beautiful encounter that we read, and we'll touch on that, God willing, next week. Then, of course, we read a little bit about the soldiers who, after crucifying Jesus, sat back and watched. That was their job, to watch, to make sure no one stole his body, and eventually they mocked him even more by offering him sour wine. We'll touch on those, God willing, next week. But for now, we come to the last group that John Mark points us towards, and he says that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These were violent robbers, insurrectionists, these other condemned men, and they joined in. Surely their own pain, it magnified their contempt. It was like a man coming home from a bad day and kicking his dog. Because Jesus, in his meekness, he was not resisting. He was not fighting. He was not even opening his word to utter a response. And so he was an easy target for them in this moment. And perhaps his composure, it made them all the more angry. The fact that he wasn't crying out like them. He wasn't pleading for his life like they had done. And so in the midst of their own suffering, they reviled Christ. Dear friends, I'm sure you've all heard the saying by now, hurt people hurt people. I hate that saying. I absolutely hate it. Firstly, because I have yet to meet a person that was not hurt. So it's a nonsensical statement. Essentially, you're saying people hurt people. To live in this world is to be a hurt person. But secondly, and more troubling than that, because more often than not, it is used as an excuse for sin. As if, the, as if the circumstances of life or the ways that other people have sinned against us somehow give us a license for evil. Dear children, don't you understand we're all hurting? I hate to break it to you, but you're not special in that regard. The question is, what do you do with that hurt? Do you respond like Christ? You refused to open your mouth and speak a curse against them? While he was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Are you like these condemned men, railing against God and others, feeling justified in your pain for whatever comes out of your mouth and whatever your hands do? They did not know who they were railing against. But dear friends, you know what happened next, don't you? We've got to go to Luke's gospel. Forgive me, I know we've jumped around a lot. Go ahead and turn to Luke 23. We're going to look there. That's where we're going to conclude. Go ahead and jump to Luke 23, because you know what happened. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. And while you're doing that, I need to remind you. I need to remind you of what we've just said, because this can get lost oftentimes. You must remember that both men reviled Jesus. That's what it says here, plural, those. Those who were crucified with Christ reviled him. Both of these men hated Jesus. Both of these men uttered blasphemies against him. And Luke gives us some insight in verse 39. Luke gives us some insight as to what they were saying. One of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him saying, are you, the, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. This man just wanted relief. Do you see that? I hate you, Jesus. Why aren't you easing my suffering? Isn't that the cry of the world? Look, they wouldn't say it that bluntly. Most people wouldn't cry out with that, that much boldness. But the spirit is the same. 
They have no inherent interest in worshiping or following Jesus Christ, but they are furious with him that they're suffering now. I don't believe in God because I'm mad at God because of how much pain I have. I refuse to believe in God because the God I don't believe in hasn't taken me out of this tough situation. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So oftentimes we, we come to this passage and we see it as a, a picture, the, the perfect picture of a man that knows nothing about Jesus Christ and in his final moments he cries out to God and he is saved. And think about the thief on the cross will say, this was clearly a sinful man. This man was not in the synagogue. He was not in the temple. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He did not have his theology all buttoned up. He didn't undergo baptism or some other, some other rite. He simply cried out to Jesus and he was saved. Dear friends, I do not disagree with one single statement. Every bit of that is true. This is a story. This story gives us absolute undeniable evidence that any who turn to Christ even if it is at their dying moment, if you will turn to Christ, you will be saved. And Christian, please hear me and hear me well. We have no clue what the sovereign God of the universe does in the final moments of a man's life. Do you understand the hope that we can find in this? That the God of the universe can take an unborn baby like John the Baptist, fill him with his spirit, cause him to leap in the presence of the Lord. There is absolutely no doubt that he can bring a man to spiritual life even as his physical life is coming into his very last moments. Do you understand the hope that we find in this? Dear friends, I refuse to give unwarranted assurance to anyone. If a man spends his entire life in sin and rebellion against God, having no use for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he comes to the end of that life, and there is no evidence at all that this man has changed, then based on the testimony of his life, I cannot give assurance that this man is in heaven. Based on the testimony of his life, it seems as though he is not. But praise God that the eternal destinies of men is not relying upon my assurance. Please tell me you see the hope in this. We praise God that we can continue to pray as long as there is air in their lungs, as long as there is life in their body. We can continue to pray to the God of the universe because he will do with them as he sees fit and he will do good because he is good. That we can continue to pray, God, have your way with them. Their salvation is not wrapped up in us and our abilities our ability to get to them, our ability to respond to them, our ability to, to exhort them. Then on a man's very last breath, at his very dying moment, the God of the universe can reach into his chest and say, have a heart of flesh and be saved. And I know how deeply that hits some of you. My heart breaks for some of you because I know how badly you pray for that. You feel like you failed. You feel like you've, you've given your life to, to, to plead with these people, to just believe. And you see nothing in their life that gives you any evidence that they're going to turn at any, 
at any point. But if God is who he says he is, man, and if he's, if he's capable of what he says he's capable of, he come that very last moment, man. And my heart breaks because I know how many of you are there. I know how many of you are worried about children and parents and spouses and you see no hope of anything because you're out of words and they, they can't hear the preacher anymore they won't listen to the preacher anymore they're not reading their bibles and they don't care anything about prayer dear friends god is good god will do what is right salvation is from him Pray that you see the hope in that. But I'm afraid if we oversimplify this man on the cross, we turn him into just a dude that, that cries out at the last moment without any real understanding of Christ and the cross, I'm afraid that we miss the beauty of his confession. We rob ourselves of this dead, solid, perfect picture of what true, biblical, repentant faith looks like I must move quickly but I, I want you to see this these other people did not know what they were doing but this guy knew what he was doing I want you to look with me at how much he knew even after railing against Jesus with his friends he turns to the man and he says do you not fear God this man knew he knew that he needed to fear God he knew that more than the Roman soldiers he knew that more than the religious leaders that it was God alone that was to be feared he knew that it was God alone to whom he must give an account. So he says, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, this man knew that death was imminent. Both of these men were dying, and so was everyone else. But they had a gift of God of knowing that it was right there at the doorstep. Do you understand? The wages of sin are death, and payday had come for these two jokers, and they knew it. They knew it. They looked in the eye of the greatest enemy of man, death, and it drove this man to fear. As death breathed down his neck, he cried out, don't you fear God? Since we're under the sentence of, same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, this man knew that he deserved to die. He knew that his condemnation was just. He offered no excuse, and he demanded no exemption. Beloved, this is the beginning of true repentance. Don't you understand? How many times have men come to my office to talk about their sin? They claim repentance while never actually acknowledging guilt for anything. They talk about the general idea of sin, the general concept of guilt. They never acknowledge anything specific that they have done. Then even worse than this, they grumble against God for the discipline that he brings into their life. He acts as though he can be right with God while grumbling against him for the discipline. True repentance, saving repentance, it begins with a heart that acknowledges guilt and then willingly accepts whatever the consequences are. True repentance is not trying to find a way around consequences. True repentance is not trying to find a way to minimize what the rest of the world finds out about your filth. True repentance is a broken and contrite heart that fears God and wants to be right with him more than he wants to hold on to his reputation. That fears God and wants to be right with him more than he wants to avoid earthly punishment. Do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man knew that Jesus was righteous. 
He knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. He knew that this man died for sins that he had not committed. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. This man knew that his only hope was to plead for mercy. You must see this. Please see this. This man did not ask that Jesus eliminate his physical suffering. He did not ask that Jesus save his physical life. That was the other man. In his hatred and in his sin, he railed against God. Make my suffering stop. Save my physical life. This man was done with all that. That was no longer the goal. That was no longer his concern. Again, I say, he who would save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel will gain it. This man's priorities were completely transformed. No longer was he worried about anything else other than what comes next. I fear God, and I fear what happens when I come into his presence. I fear what comes next. There was no pride. There was no longer a refusal to acknowledge guilt. No demand to avoid suffering and the consequences for all that he had done. Just a cry for mercy. He heard Jesus' prayer. He heard Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them. And he thought to himself, would he really forgive me? Would he really forgive a condemned, a justly condemned man like me? It's worth a shot. Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus, please, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? This man knew that Jesus was a king. And he knew that his kingdom was not in this, of this world. Knew that his kingdom was not bound up in a popularity contest or the popular vote. He saw what everyone else saw. They saw a blasphemous man, a man deserving of death hanging upon a cross. But Jesus knew that this, or this man knew that Jesus was a king deserving of worship. He knew that Jesus alone had the power, the authority, the right to gain access to his kingdom. You notice he didn't ask for a checklist. He didn't tell Jesus, just tell me what the steps to do to enter your kingdom are and then I will do them. He didn't try to earn his way into the kingdom. There was no time for any of that. He just cried out. My only hope is that the king would remember me. My only hope is that the king would allow me access into his kingdom. Dear children, please tell me that you see this. You see the power of this confession. He is hopeless. He has nothing else. He has no time to go do anything else. His only hope is that the king would remember him. His only hope is that the king would have mercy on him. His only hope is that the king would forgive him. So he cries out, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Dear friends, I've prayed for you. I need you to know anticipation for this sermon. This is not a normal sermon. And not just because I cried is it not normal. This is not a normal sermon for this church. This is not a normal sermon for me. And I need you to know that I came and I sat right there on that step and I prayed for every single one of you. And I listed other brothers and sisters and I asked them to pray for every single one of you that you'll be able to come to this place and see yourself as a condemned man on the cross. Dear friends, that you would recognize that death is coming. That you would be able to see yourself as someone that has been stripped of absolutely everything else. And then instead of being like the crowd, that's self-righteous in your ignorance, believing that you know what God has said, that instead of being like the religious leaders, believing that you've got to hold on to your pride and to your reputation, to your own little kingdom, that instead of being like the other th angry thief railing against God because he has not brought an end to his suffering, that you would fall on your face like this man right here, that you would cry out, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Dear friends, I give you absolute assurance. If you will cry out like this, that that general prayer of Father, forgive them, will be replaced by a specific prayer of the great high priest who intercedes at his Father's right hand that looks. He no longer says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says, Father, forgive them. They are mine. I bought them. 
Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you that it saves by the power of your spirit. So Father, my deepest desire, my greatest prayer is that those who are among us that are yours, that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged, and that by this word they would endure to the end. Father, for those that are not, for those that believe they have been so estranged from you, so far removed from you that there is no possible way back, they would look to a man, a wicked man, a violent man, a condemned man on the cross. They would see themselves. They would cry out to mercy to you, and they would be saved. But whatever it is, Father, we don't want one to leave this place confused as to where they stand with you. So, Father, stir in our hearts, open our eyes, cause us to truly examine ourselves. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.